Hi, welcome to back to part two of our conversation with Professor John, Professor Ann Lee, and Paul J. Of the Can I just say something? Because when you introduced me last time, you talked about me founding the real news, which is true. Yeah. But now I'm, it's, I'm, I don't work there anymore. I'm at the analysis.news. That's the website. And, uh, and that's the analysis.news that's producing the, uh, how to, the name of the film is How to Stop a Nuclear War. Okay. Uh, can you, well, tell us a little more about your, your documentary, what you got lined up here, Paul, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a little bit and then we can take some questions. So first of all, it's the story of Dan Ellsberg, who's the man who, by releasing the Pentagon Papers, helped end the Vietnam War, but even more specifically, uh, helped restrain Nixon from using a nuclear weapon in Vietnam. And one of the points Ellsberg makes will make in the film is that if that had happened, it wouldn't have just been a disaster for Vietnam, although he doesn't think, nor did Nixon think, that the Soviet Union or China would have done anything about it. Neither of them were going to risk an all-out nuclear war uh, over Vietnam. Uh, but it would have created an era of the use of tactical nuclear weapons. It would have kind of normalized it. Uh, which to some, which partly happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the world was pretty horrified with that. But I, I used to have a ta another tactical in Vietnam might have normalized it. So it's partly the story of Ellsberg's role in discovering the horror and lies of the American nuclear war uh, planning, because he was a nuclear war planner. He worked for Rand Corporation before he released the Pentagon Papers. And he was an advisor to the White House and the Pentagon, including during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he has some very important insights into the Cuban Missile Crisis, which this is Daniel. Yeah, you're talking. Yeah, okay. Paul Ellsberg. And if somebody wants to know more about that, because it has a lot to say about what's happening today, mm -hmm. but it's about his also his warning of today, how how risk how great a risk we are. Uh, he thinks even in some ways riskier than the Cuban Missile Crisis oh my. in terms of how close we could be to nuclear war. And the film is going to propose, based on Ellsberg and some others who agree with him, and some very concrete things that could be done to mitigate, I should use the word, reduce the risk of nuclear war. There are some things that could be done without a complete transformation of the economy without getting to some form of socialism, without, without a radical rupture from today's world. Although I'd love to see such a radical rupture. <laughs> but there needs to be such a world to have a radical rupture with. Mm -hmm. There are some steps that could be taken. And, and, and number one is get rid of ICBMs, even unilaterally. They do nothing except their targets, they're an accident waiting to happen. And the only thing they do effectively is make money for Lockheed Martin. Everything else is BS. But in, this age, in this age of nuclear submarines, do we really need ICBMs? No, that's the point. Right. The deterrent is in the subs. All ICBMs, you know what they call uh, one of the defenders of ICBMs? The name for them is nuclear sinkholes. Meaning that if there's a Russian attack on the United States, they're gonna to try to take out all the ICBMs. So they're gonna have less ICBMs to blow up cities with. 
That's supposedly a rational defense. Now say that to Winnipeg <laughs> or Calgary. Mm -hmm. It's not very far from these Montana ICBMs. But anyway, who gives a damn about Canadian cities anyway? Um, <laughs> so, so get rid of ICBMs. They're absolutely pointless. Subs can do everything in terms of deterrence and then some. Two, start, and it doesn't matter, Ukraine or no Ukraine, immediately restart, start, get back to nuclear weapon negotiations and treaties, because right now there's nothing. I mean, there is one, but they're not doing it. And in, by 2024, even that will be over with. There has to be a serious uh, nuclear arms reduction treaty. There needs to be specifically a treaty to reduce and eliminate tactical nuclear weapons. Yes. Get it off the table. Don't even, you can, it should be illegal. They can't be had. You know, they're not really a deterrent. They're a, a type of first strike weapon. And, and, and where they really are effective is against non-nuclear countries. That's what they're meant for. They're not meant to use against another big nuclear country. Mm -hmm. Russia might use it against the Ukraine because they know the U.S. won't go to all-out nuclear war to defend Ukraine. I don't even know if the U.S. would really do it, even to defend a Poland or you know Romania, even to defend a NATO country. Don't you think China and India would have have something to say on that if uh, Russia uses nukes? Because that's well, in their backyard. Well, yeah. Uh, most importantly, China. I mean, China does not want Russia. To use nukes there's no question and they're warning the americans be careful what you wish for if there's a breakup of the russian federation if the putin's mm -hmm. regime really thinks they're about to uh, be overthrown uh yeah of course but they don't have control over the russian state uh, they have a lot of power influence but they they don't control it uh, mm -hmm. the uh so reduce get rid of icbms reduce and eliminate tactical nuclear weapons, get rid of anti-ballistic missile systems completely. Uh, they don't really work. They give a false sense of uh, security and they allow, and to the extent they might work, like if the, let's say the Americans really do develop some ABM system that's relatively effective, it gives a kind of first strike capability. So it scares the hell out of the other side. Mm -hmm. Get rid of this new damn stealth bomber, the B-21. It can avoid radar and it can be armed with nuclear weapons. They just rolled it out uh, a couple of months ago. What is the point? You want a weapon that could drop nuclear bombs that Russian radar or Chinese radar can't pick up? That just means they're going to see some balloon flying over and think it's a stealth and, and preemptively fire. <laughs> I mean, it's it's beyond insanity where we are headed on nuclear, but we need to get away from focusing. Of course, we want the abolition of nuclear weapons, but we can't just focus on that as the demand because that ain't happening. And in fact, mm -hmm. there's a there's an argument to be made if Ukraine really had had a few nukes under its own control because. You know, they gave up nuclear weapons, but they never controlled them. It was always Russian, Soviet, then Russian controlled. But if they actually had their own nukes, mm -hmm. would Russia have invaded? You know, would North Korea still be, North, be what it is if it didn't have a few nukes? So, the, you know, 
And this is part of the problem of non-proliferation. If the U.S. Russians don't reduce seriously their own number of weapons, how do they persuade anybody to buy into non-proliferation? The world's going the other way. Yeah. Ukraine's telling everybody, shit, you better have a few. So, so we need this we need to have a demand of rationality coming from the people and the elites need a, a goddamn slap across the damn face. Even your own wealth ain't going to mean nothing. So, so the film's about Dan's story and then it weaves into the current situation and into real things that could help at least reduce the risk. So at the present time, if if people want to help with the funding, they can go to your website, theanalysisnews.net or dot com. Yeah, dot, yeah. I mean, it's dot not it's not dot net. It's theanalysis.news or dot com works too. Either one works. Okay. And, and if you donate, I I have I'm not sure. I think there's some place where you can email and say this donation's meant for the film, or you can donate just to generally that's the ultimate serial killer is nuclear war <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's how i that's great that's how i should pitch it to netflix i'm serial killer here i got the, the ultimate serial killer for you that's, hey, that's a good line i ain't gonna use that so um i we'll we'll take a few uh few questions and i think the first guy up is uh is our friend rodrigo who would love to do the uh spanish version of your film but he's got to be as famous as Emma Thompson, though. Well, only in our society is he. <laughs> Rod, what's your question, my friend? Thanks. Uh, I have a few, but feel free to address only the ones you want. Uh, Biden and Trudeau are now ordering F-22s to waste Sidewinder missiles on either UFOs slash UAPs or weather balloons because the right wing is pushing the narrative that you look weak if you don't potentially start World War III or an interstellar war. The Chinese have started to shoot down balloons too. Can we trust any of these actors to push for peace if we don't push them? Also, uh, many people think the solution is replacing Putin, but they refuse to acknowledge that anyone likely to replace Putin is either to his right or dead. And can you talk about this a bit? Well, let me start with the second one first. I agree with you. The, the likelihood of the fall of Putin, unless there's a real mass uprising of a progressive Russian people, and that's not out of the question from what I'm hearing, but not tomorrow, unless there's that, then the likelihood is Putin would be replaced by an even more rabid Christian nationalist. Uh, and, uh, you know, even, you know, the supposed Russian Communist Party is even more nationalist, even than Putin. And the, of course, the church is this toxic mix of religion and nationalism. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think anyone that wishes for the downfall of Putin, be careful what you wish for, because uh, at least there's somebody there, maybe would make some kind of a deal. Uh, who knows what comes next? It could be more of an outright Hitler. Um, uh, so, so yeah. So on the first question, um, well, on the sidewinders, I was just reading this morning. Apparently, each one of those sidewinder winders. 
uh, cost the Pentagon $430,000. And apparently they have more than 100,000 of them and have just ordered another, was it 25,000? Some crazy numbers. Um, why the hell do you need a sidewinder missile to shoot down a balloon? I mean, can't you do that with a slingshot? <laughs> just poke the damn thing and the air comes out. I mean, I don't understand. The, the whole balloon thing is such absolute nonsense. You know, uh, if, I was just saying, if it's everything they say it is, let's say it's a spy thing which is ridiculous anyway, I think, but let's say it is. So what? Who gives a shit? They, what, are they, what are they doing that they couldn't do by satellite? What are they, it's just nonsense. Like somebody said, oh, maybe they're able to hover and pick up telephone communication at one of the missile silo bases in Montana. They can't hire someone to drive a car near the base and pick the, what do they need a balloon for? Just go drive next to the base. There's roads that go right up to the edge of the fence. I mean, the whole thing is, is idiocy. The problem is it's a symptom of how domestic politics is driving an insane foreign policy. Because if you don't shoot down the balloon, you look weak on China. So you shoot down the balloon and you come up with a more ridiculous rhetoric. And when you, you actually had a rational thing where Blinken was going to go talk his vis-a-vis -vis in China and talk about how to reduce tension and here come the balloons I don't know maybe maybe it was Dick Cheney put the balloon up there I don't know I mean who does that serve all of a sudden these balloons showing up uh, now the thing to understand though is there's Dick Cheney's on the other side China has its version of Dick Cheney and there's real nationalist war hawks and a military industrial complex in China so these economic motives of, get, of almost war, of a great tension, uh, including over Taiwan, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's the same kind of people in China. I think somewhat less of them, somewhat less powerful than they are in the United States. But both sides, include Russia, I mean, there's the military industrial complex in all three of these states uh, I'm not sure the Russians are, are loving where how Ukraine's going, but generally speaking, they like almost war. You, you guys ever heard of a guy, a guy named Zavrov? I think I have Z Zakharov. In yeah. the first in the first in World War, he was the he's he was the original merchant of death. They've used that phrase since. This guy got the rights to sell one of the, I can't one of the early machine guns. I'm not sure which one it was in Europe in the lead up to World War One. And he got a contract selling them. He well, actually, first he, he took out newspaper ads that looked like articles, because back in those days you could. So in the French papers, he had an article reporting that the Germans had bought his machine gun. And in the German papers, he he got an article printed that the French had bought the machine guns. So of course the Germans and French both went out and bought the machine guns. And this guy was feeding everybody weapons all through the First World War, and he wasn't the only one. Mm -hmm. um, these, these guys, you know, the world to a large extent is governed by out-and-out -out sociopaths. I'd agree on that. I also would have used the Jewish uh, space laser to take out the balloon. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, three more quick ones before Joe. Uh, 
My Go ahead, Rodrigo. Now believe that Zelensky sabotaged peace talks, perhaps under the direction of the billionaire who owns the TV station where that comedy where he played the Ukrainian president aired. Can you address the implications or relevance of this? Uh, the trial of Assange continues. For those not keeping up, he's been tried as a foreign journalist that embarrassed the US, no mention of, all, of other things, which mainstream media is finally starting to get worried about. Can you talk about this a bit? And Okay, what you what these are kind of disconnected things, so you better not I'm gonna forget what you're asking here. Let me well, let me do Assange and, and the peace well, the peace thing, I don't know the detail. I just know what you know. It sounds like Zelensky was pressured by the Americans. Um to negotiate and, and maybe uh, Boris Johnson, uh, it sounds like that. I mean, I know Zelensky just a few weeks after the invasion said something very reasonable which is maybe now's the time to say no nato because we're never getting in anyway and um and he was shut up i think part of the controversy was that israel um ambassador who said that they had a um, peace deal lined up and boris um shotgunned it but if you go on through the article and then they said uh, and then bucha was found out uh, 400 people tortured and dead and they said once that came out there was no way there was going to be a peace deal so um if they wanted a peace deal there would have been a peace deal uh, but otherwise how many more buchas are there uh i don't th there there's certainly a very there's a very powerful section of liberal Democrats who have really been won over and partly directly by Zelensky courting them um, that Ukraine must be liberated and to compromise on it is to give in to a kind of Hitler. And it's, 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 it's intimidating uh, whether the, if, if Biden had any instincts to try to resolve this, and he might have, you know, he did oppose the no-fly zone when Hillary was for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's, as in China right now, I wouldn't rule out, I mean, I, I don't like the demonization of George Soros, but Soros has gone nuts on China, and he's a major funder of the Democrats, and he may be an influence in pushing... Mm -hmm the Biden administration to be more uh, aggressive on China. But the fact that Blinken was going to go there and it gets sabotaged by these balloons, it's too much to be, a, I mean, it could be a coincidence, but seems it's more than a coincidence. Um, as far as Assange goes, um, well, you know, when Assange was arrested, he was holding my book, right? So I've... <laughs> no, I did not know that. Yeah, I made a I made a short documentary called The History of the National Security State, which is just an interview with Gore Vidal with a bunch of images. Oh, and yeah, then I yeah. turned it into a book, The History of the National Security State. And when he's arrested, just look at all the photographs in his handcuffed hands, he's holding a book. And that's my book, The History of the, the wow. Interview with Gore Vidal. Um, I think what's happening is that, yeah, the newspapers have finally got through their damn heads 
that the reason they're going, the reason they're prosecuting Assange is to try to intimidate the major newspapers. That's the point of it. And in any future whistleblowers like Chelsea, any other Chelsea Mannings. Um, and it's interesting that Obama had decided not to prosecute Assange for exactly those reasons that he, he, he thought it would be wrong to go after the big newspapers. And he knew a prosecution of Assange would lead to that. Mm. But Trump overturned that and went after him and apparently even talked about ways to assassinate Assange, which is kind of ironic. And yet people like Glenn Greenwald go on the Tucker Carlson show and think they're going to recruit Tucker Carlson to uh, demand the freedom for Assange, which he kind of does, but it's all bullshit because he supports Trump who wanted to kill Assange. Anyway, um, I, I think the plan they're hoping Assange dies in jail and that they drag this out and drag this out. I think the last thing they really want is a trial. And if they do finally extradite him to the US, they'll probably, you know, there's ways, I guess, within American law to try to appeal and do this and do that. I don't think they really want a trial because it might turn into a show trial and put US foreign policy on trial. So of course, he should, of course, he should be let go. It's not a prosecution. It's a persecution. John, do you have something to add? Uh, I would agree with that, uh, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's mind boggling that the US government is, uh, you know, persecuting journalists uh, using the Espionage Act and uh, other things that were not intended for that purpose. Or if they were, they should have no business, you know, persisting. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm finding myself in agreement with almost everything Paul has said, so I'm having a little difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> How about yourself, Anne? No, I I agree with with the uh, the analysis. It's uh it's really unfortunate that there are so many military industrial complexes that are that are at work across the globe and working in effect at cross purposes. Well, that is so true. Rodrigo, are you done with your questions, or you have no, one more? Last one. Uh, Paul J mentioned wanting a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. I just wanted to remind people that. The rich countries used the previous COP to push India and China into voting against moving away from fossil fuels because the rich countries refused to subsidize the developing nations in their quest to develop without crippling themselves. Yeah. And I don't think they've changed their mind about that. Yeah, uh, I, I understand and it's true, but for China, you should see what China looks like at three degrees. Uh, you see what Russia looks like at three degrees. Russia is already, Siberia is already a complete mess because of climate change. The permafrost. Uh, yeah, permafrost is melting. And as the permafrost melts, the uh, oil pipelines are cracking. Mm -hmm. Methane's being released. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's already a mess. Uh, and, and China at three degrees. I don't get why the Chinese aren't more... Uh, active on this front uh, they're doing something it's not that they're doing nothing but it doesn't seem to be as high a priority as one would think it would be uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it's not like they're a fossil fuel producing country so they don't have some of the same you know it's not like what you know russia doesn't have much motivation 
given their economy so dependent on fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. But China still, what is it, a new coal uh, processing plant or mine every, one every week. And of course, the Ukraine war is pushing Europe back into coal. Um, mm. But you're right. I mean, it's this, the bottom line is capitalism is at a stage of extreme irrationality. There's always been irrationality within capitalism. And, and, you know, there's a kernel of rationality, which is short-term profit. So the irrationality of a first world war, of a second world war, uh, go on and on with it. The insane destruction of all of that. You know, there's some rationality of it that at least some people are making money out of it. I mean, it's, it's horrible, but there's a logic to it. Where's the logic now? when what they're doing is going to lead to their own destruction of the ability for them to make profit. Like it's the capitalism has lost even that much logic. The profit making logic is so short term that they won't even regulate the insanities of Wall Street. Hmm. You know, I did a story just a little while ago about um, I interviewed uh, Rob Johnson about this from INET. There is, let me remember the numbers here. There's this thing in currency swaps where uh, one country or one pension fund or sovereign wealth fund, let's say the Japanese pension fund owns a ton of yen, but they want to do an investment in Europe and they need euros. Vice versa, some European pension fund, wealth, asset management company, whatever. We're talking in millions and millions of dollars here, usually. They want to do something in Japan, they need yen. So they do a, a contract for a currency swap. So the deal is, we'll give you the yen, you give us the euros, and we're going to make a deal in one week or one month or 90 days, whatever the contract is we'll swap back again. And whatever the difference in the currency exchange rates are, we'll adjust how much money has to be done in the swap so that it comes out even. So we're really just doing a swap. Now that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And in some ways it is. Well, the Bank for International Settlements, which has been called the Central Bank of Central Banks, issued a report just a few weeks ago, which said, now let me get the number. I think it was, yeah, if you, I may be wrong with my numbers, but I think it's 1.5 trillion dollars, maybe more. It's something like the GDP of the United States, which is not, no, no, GDP in the United States is like 19 trillion, 20 trillion. Anyway, it's, it's several trillions of dollars are outstanding in these contracts. But according to this report, here's the rub. They don't have to report these amounts of money that are outstanding on the contracts on their books until the contract closes. So according to the Bank for National Settlements, there are trillions and trillions of dollars out there in these unresolved contracts on nobody's books. So what happens when the contract comes due, say the 90 days is up, what if one of the partners 
has gone bankrupt. What if there's a, an, a 2008, 2009 type event where several banks, many banks are in deep crisis and don't even trust each other's books anymore, which is what happened in 0708. They wouldn't loan to each other because each individual bank had created such systemic fraud about their own assets. They knew the other banks had done the same thing and they wouldn't loan to each other. So the system got paralyzed and the Fed had to come in and bail them all out because the whole of global capitalism would have collapsed. The whole banking system would have collapsed. Well, according to the Bank for International Settlements, that same risk now exists because of the amount of money in currency swaps that have the potential to go south. And if a few go south, then it goes, it could be a domino effect, according to this report. So these guys, these guys being the financial elites who are the real lords of the universe, they can't, they won't even allow some regulation. So these systemic threats that could destroy their own wealth don't continue. The, the irrationality of capitalism is at a stage where they can't even defend their own system. I, you know, I, I used to use this line, I'm going to bring it back again. The billionaire class is not fit to rule. Now, you could say for the majority of the American population, for quite a while, most people did benefit from the American empire. Not everybody by far, of course. But up until recently, I, haven't, I don't know what the new numbers are, but there's a really interesting statistic. In terms of actual numbers of people, there were about as many families with income over $100,000 as there were families with income under 40000 Get that, eh? Mm -hmm. So most Americans were doing okay. Uh, even though, of course, millions were not. So this is shifting now. Um, anyway, just to get to this point, we have to find ways to talk to people about this beyond, you know, the limited platforms we all have here, uh, because the billionaire class is leading us over a cliff. I would just I would to agree with that. Go ahead. You, no, the, uh, the amount in those, uh, foreign currency swaps is 65 trillion right which is many times the uh, yeah much more than the american gdp yeah yeah that's right that's right that's that's it's a global systemic threat and the bis they sound like bs but they're not they're they're serious money managers who try to defend global capitalism as realistically as they can when they come out with a report like this, it should have been headlines everywhere, but it, you, you, you could barely find this. Yeah, Bloomberg had it, Reuters had a report, the odd business press did, but it came and went and the things, nothing's changed. I, re I remember uh, 2008, 2009, um, Edmonton's got a, well, it's got a million people now. You could drive down the highway and see very few cars. Uh, because everybody got laid off and they were, um, and I remember people having to sell their houses and driving sheet metalists would, uh, drive for pizza delivery services over this. 
Joe. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the anti-war movement as it existed, if you've you explored that in your documentary and what the state is in North America, because from my perspective, it seems there's a fairly sizable Russian and Ukrainian population heritage-wise in both of the countries, and whether there's some kind of coalition with those two groups working together as a unified anti-war coalition. Has anything like that started? I don't know. Um, honestly, I don't know. I'm stuck here on my computer working on the film and going out and shooting. Uh, it's a good idea, you know, you'd think. But the problem with the Ukrainian community, at least in Canada, it's very much, I, and I don't know everybody, I'm sure not, but to a large extent, it's uh, uh, trying to get the Canadian government to be as militant and of supporting the Ukrainian government as possible. Um, I don't, I don't hear Ukrainian voices saying there needs to be a, a compromise. Um, we're in a radically I'm, sure, different... I'm sure there are such voices, but they're not getting any exposure mm -hmm. in the Canadian media. Yes, we're in a quite a radically different state compared to the pre-Iraq War situation. Seems oh yeah, like a more clear-cut situation. Well, there's something that happens to a section of the American and Canadian and others, but the American liberal left always when it's been anti-war feels like it's in the minority, it's on the outside. There's a section of, of liberal corporate Democrats and such that kind of like to, what's the word, tap into the Cold War and nationalist fervor. Zeitgeist. Anti-Russia, head down with the Russians. And, you know, it's, it's some emotional release that people used to get about hating communism. Well, you, now you can hate the Russians and still think you're a good guy, so. And I, that, like that resolution just passed in the Senate, I mean, the House, <laughs> the anti-socialist resolution. I, it was, I was glad to see 86 Democrats voted against it. That's something. Uh, the fact that 170-something Democrats, I can't remember the numbers, voted for it is kind of despicable, but not surprising. But 86 voted against it and actually understood that this uh, resolution against socialism is targeting certain measures in the United States that are socialistic. I mean, obviously, Medicare is socialistic. And uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Social Security. Social Security is socialistic. And, and one of the uh, Congresswomen, uh, Democrats, pointed out, you know, a lot of the policies in American allies, like in the Nordic states, even Canada has a government health insurance plan. She was saying these things are social, are like socialist policies. So if you're condemning that, you're condemning many of our allies. Um, but there is a reason why uh, the far right are so vilifying socialism. Um, and it's not just they want to paint the Democrats as being socialists, which on the whole they're not. But it's because there is something becoming painfully obvious to much of the American elites, which is there is no other solution than socialistic type of solutions. There is nothing else for climate. When it comes to the climate crisis, at least that, 
without central planning, you do not get to a green sustainable economy. The marketplace will never get us to a green sustainable economy. Everybody knows it. Without central planning and public ownership, I mean, maybe, maybe central planning with severe regulations might do it, but I doubt it. You know, Bob Poland, you know, from the Perry Institute and others, if you don't nationalize the fossil fuel industry and mm -hmm. phase it out, it ain't going to happen. Certainly the marketplace won't do it. Um, so these guys, especially, and who's behind this far right? Well, it's the fossil fuel industry and sections, if not the whole of the military industrial complex. That's who's behind and, and finances this thing. Um, and they know. And, and in, in spite of them knowing that it ain't happening without socialistic type policies, they don't want it. I'm under the opinion 3PLs or public-private partnerships, they, they don't work. Yeah, well, there's, no, there's certainly no evidence that they do. That's uh, true. That's right. And 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 so th this attack on socialism is not just a distraction. The fact that so many Democrats voted for it, like mm -hmm. I said, give credit to the 86 that didn't. Um, but the fact that the vast majority of Democrats voted for it, it's not just intimidation of being being worried about being called soft on communism and this and that, which is part of it. They are worried about that. Um, you know, I'll give Obama credit for two things. One, when he got, I never drank the Obama Kool-Aid. I was critical of Obama from day one. I mean, before day one, before he was president. Cause I used to, I used to do something where I, I wouldn't watch his speeches, I would read them. Because if you read them, you knew you were dealing with a center center right Democrat. But if you watch them, that gorgeous smile, those intelligent eyes, you figured, oh God, he knows better than what he's saying. He really actually is progressive. He's a beautiful but, man. Yeah, but if, <laughs> but, if, but if you read the speeches, like I did a story way back then, was Reverend Wright wrong? And I concluded Reverend Wright was right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the real substance of that Obama attack on Reverend Wright was Reverend Wright's critique of Zionism. It wasn't even really primarily about race, although it was, and Obama was saying ridiculous things that there's no systemic racism. But anyway, I, I had two hopes, but well, one hope for Obama, he'd be rational on Iran, and he was. That agreement, to, uh, the, nuclear wep uh, the nuclear agreement with Iran was a, was a one rational thing. And then two, he said something which I thought was great, although I don't think he meant it, but I thought it was great. But it's something other Democrats could say. In the last week of the election, McCain starts attacking him as a socialist. And he goes on and on, Obama's a socialist, Obama's a socialist. And Obama finally answers him. He says, you know what? My Bible teaches me I am my brother's keeper. So call me whatever you want. Mm -hmm. It completely diffused it. So these goddamn Democrats today, they could just repeat what Obama said and diffuse it. But the problem is many of those corporate Democrats are as virulently anti-socialist, anti-communist, because they work you know, with Wall Street and so on. But I, you know, that's what we should all be saying. Yeah, we are our brother's keeper, and that's, so what?
If you guys have a question for Paul before we lose him, by all means, go ahead. No, I, I just want to thank thank Paul for his time. It uh, really is important and also reminds us of uh, how, how we need to get out there and, and get moving on some of these things. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to thank you as well and uh, agree that we need to uh, pressure our government through elections, through mass movements, through civil disobedience, direct action, uh, support for a labor movement, a democratically controlled labor movement, uh, to, to uh, pressure them to, for example, end this war in Ukraine as quickly as possible, because this is not an existential issue for the United States and most of the West. Um, we have to end it. It has to be a compromise. It's got to be done. And we need to move on to more important things like climate change and change and uh, stopping nuclear. Well, and maybe they're connected. Maybe the way to get Russia to compromise is to get together with China and offer uh, uh, some kind of plan to over, you know, to transition Russia off fossil fuel, you know, make this a kind of a win-win thing. And, uh, and Putin come and, and offer no NATO for Ukraine and Oh, absolutely. And, and fuck the, this business of who looks strong and who looks weak. Let's get to a solution. No, I, I agree with that. I also wondered why uh, Biden didn't um, go more into uh, with Iran getting the deal, because that would have solved some of the problems. Yeah, because of that, he's just so worried about looking weak. Uh, and Venezuela yeah, and is... And the Saudi-Israeli Saudi lobby. and Right. Well, I gotta. I want to thank all of you, uh, Paul. Thank you so much. And your website is analysis. Analysis dot news. Okay, and you'll find that in the show notes. And and Lee, you have another uh, column coming out tonight on the Daily Costs. Yes, K -O -S. I do. All right, and Professor John, and you can actually catch Ann and Professor John on David Feldman's office hours. Go to his website, and. Um, register and john teaches uh, star trek and do that as well so, thank you so much thank my friend. you bye bye Take everybody care. bye